we have to sort of jettison any sentimentality about, as it were, the old public sector and think much more deeply about what we want the state to look like. Hello and welcome to Tech Won't Save Us, a podcast that thinks there must be a better way to organize the development of technology than how it currently works. I'm your host, Paris Marks, and today I'm speaking with Dan Hind. Dan is the author of The Return of the Public, Democracy, Power, and the Case for Media Reform. It was published by Verso Books. He also wrote a report last year called The British Digital Cooperative for Next System and Commonwealth. That's mainly what we'll be talking about today. I think you're really going to like this conversation where Dan presents his ideas for how we can change the way that technology is developed and how we organize our broader society in a way that gives people more power and that encourages the formation of cooperatives. If you like our chat, feel free to give the podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. And make sure to share it with anyone who you think would enjoy our conversation. Finally, if you want to support the work that I put into making this podcast, you can join supporters like Kenneth Marks and Norma Aylward by going to patreon.com slash parismarks and making a contribution. Thanks so much and enjoy the conversation. Dan Hind, welcome to Tech Won't Save Us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's fantastic to talk to you today. I wanted to have you on because you wrote this report last year for Next System and Commonwealth called the British Digital Cooperative, where you kind of laid out this idea for what the future of media and the future of technological production could look like in a way that is democratically organized. So just to start off, um, could you briefly explain what the British Digital Cooperative is and what kind of problems that you see it responding to with the way things exist today? The idea was really just to think through what a, a, you know, a public sector institution for promoting technological development might look like. We have a kind of old-fashioned model, like, I mean, the state hasn't unashamedly taken a leading role in the economy really since the post-democratic moment of the 40s, 50s, 60s, in, in certainly Western Europe and North America, where there was a sense that the state would, would be at the leading edge of technology. Since then, there's been this, this quite interesting process of obfuscation, where um, the credit for innovation has been foisted onto private companies, which clearly most of the time are, are, are sort of um, piggybacking on the back of public investments. But, but nevertheless, the, the idea that the private sector is the sort of um, lead actor in innovation has really captured people's minds. When we start thinking about the public sector getting back involved, I think it's quite tempting to look back on the old social democratic models, where you really have an idea of the philosopher king or the sort of Mandarin class who would take taxpayers' money and would spend it in order to promote the public good or common good. And I think that's, that's, an, that's a kind of worn out model. I think it's a dangerous model. Um, the reality is the Mandarins always have much more in common with private elites than they do with um, the majority of the population. So in the British Digital Cooperative, I wanted to set out a way of doing innovation in the public sector that was much more closely tied to uh, you know, the, that terrible phrase of the end user, as much more closely tied to end users, so that um, the people who would use the technology would be much more closely involved in decisions about what kinds of technology would, were going to be developed, what kinds of um, decisions were going to be made during the development process. 
So rather than a model where you have these all-seeing technological experts who come down from the mountain with good news, you know, the kind of Promethean model of the innovator, whether in the public or the private sector, you have a, a, an approach to technological development which is much more conversational, much more egalitarian, and in some ways actually borrowing from some aspects of product design in the, in the private sector. Um, I was talking to someone I met um, who works for a digital cooperative, a chap called, called Jeanne, who um, works and looks and is very interested in product design. He pointed out that a lot of the product design work that goes on in the big digital um, companies is actually conducted in very close dialogue uh, with, the, with the consumer. And I think actually we can learn a certain amount from the actual practices of um, these big private technological developers. As long as we don't buy the PR, you know, as long as we don't sort of buy into their story about how they're actually these Promethean master thinkers. But look at what they actually do, which is that they, they do work very closely with the people who end up using technology and take very seriously uh, the insights that they can offer. And I think this becomes incredibly important when you think about developing in the public interest. The whole point, I think, about tying technological development to a progressive view or a, um, an emancipatory view of human life, if you like. The whole point is that we can't try and adapt technologies designed elsewhere for other purposes to the purposes of human flourishing. Too often, we, we are given material and technological resources from surveillance, from the defense sector, uh, from like business and enterprise uh, software in the capitalist sector. And we try, we kind of try and rework it into something that, that we can make, make use of. It seems to me much better when we're thinking about public sector innovation to start with, well, what do people actually want? What do they actually, um, what would they value in their lives before a process of commodification takes place? So before someone says, we've developed this thing, we've got to try and make people want it, rather step back and say, well, you know, what are the contours of your life now? In what ways does technology serve that more or less well? How could it serve it better? And what is the version of the future that you would consciously choose? So, you know, do you want a platform architecture that promotes cooperative production? And that's a question that every single person should be thinking about right now. You know, we've seen in the last few months what happens when a few big winners in the private sector taking this dominant position in a distribution infrastructure. It's pretty clear that, you know, there's no, there's no, it's not right, it's not the mandate of heaven that Amazon is, is becoming this kind of gargantuan presence in all our lives. And it's, you know, it's, it's a perfectly reasonable question, I think, for a public with its own developer to ask itself, right, well, is that how we want to organise our economy in the future? Are we okay with that? And I think overwhelmingly, if we, if we were able to pose the question in that sort of conversational way with, with citizens, then firstly, we'd decide, no, we don't want that. And secondly, we'd start coming up very quickly with much more subtle and interesting solutions to the, to the problems that um, Amazon at the moment imperfectly solves. Um, so I suppose in a way, what I was trying to do with the BDC proposal was to try and look beyond the public service tradition of um, public sector institutions and think about um, what a more radically democratic 
public sector institution might look like. And as always, when, once you start thinking about these things, you, you start sort of slightly baking pie in the sky. If you start thinking, well, you should have, you should use random selection. Uh, you should embed uh, technological development teams in particular communities, in particular places. Um, one of the things that I think is really um, pernicious about about our model of development is that um, developers often think that everywhere is like where they happen to live, and everyone aspires to the same lifestyle that they aspire to, or that they that they experience as being quite natural. And you don't have to go very far from san francisco or central london or wherever it happens to be to find communities of people who have, who have a radically different set of needs and a radically different set of interests who again are just being kind of given this kit that they're trying to then sort of adapt to their their needs and and really um finding themselves i think sort of constrained in in, in what they think is possible for them because they're basically using someone else's tech so once you start thinking along those lines, you start thinking, well, how many development centers are you going to have? Where are you going to put them? How are they going to relate to the local public and private sectors and so on and so forth? So there's a certain amount of projecting, to use an old word, in, in the piece, which is influenced in part by the democracy collaborative's kind of tradition, if you like, of working with local government institutions and working with um, public and private sector institutions and trying to develop new realities on the ground through things like promoting the cooperative sector, looking at supply chains and procurement patterns. But again, you know, when we think about regional development, for example, the centre usually just tries to find ways of giving money to people who already have money because the state looks for partners for things it can see, and it can see big private operations because private operations make themselves visible and intelligible to the state so when they start to think about well, what should we do about this place they start thinking in terms of well can we can we get that big company to create a warehouse there and how much money do we have to give them to sort of entice them into the area whereas actual economic development is a much more granular much more microscopic if you like i don't mean that in a dismissive way you know, understanding what would be useful in a place takes a deep knowledge. And actually, the people who have that deep knowledge are almost never asked to sheriff um, because they are people who are beneath the consideration of big capital, beneath the consideration of, of the great institutions of state. They just they wouldn't know how to speak their language. The people who speak the language of the state are people who, who want something from it and can sort of marshal the resources necessary to engage in that conversation so if we're going to do public sector development in tech or, or anywhere it's got to be a very very um detailed conversation between citizens and, and experts where really the the expert is is there in a service capacity and i guess that's kind of the 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 key one of the key pieces in you know the report that you lay out right is ensuring that the public is involved in this and that the public is, you know, leading it because you kind of build on the idea and, and the existing institution of the BBC, right? The public broadcaster in the United Kingdom. And that sort of acts as kind of a, a basis or a, a starting point for this larger reimagining of how not just media, but technology would work in the 21st century, right? So. How would you see 
the the creation of a British digital cooperative, changing what happens in media, um, and and in particular, you know what happens with the BBC to make that a more democratic uh, institution and to give journalism a more democratic role or a role that better serves the public than what exists at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the BBC is interesting from from another angle. And go, you know, just br- briefly, we we mentioned the old public service institutions um, of the sort of post-war social settlement. BBC is, in a way, that it's a prototype for that model of um, of a leading edge public sector institution. Uh, it, it dates back to to the period just after the First World War, and is a kind of uh, is a product of the High Empire in a way, and. It lurches increasingly, I think, into crisis as a result of its model, which is a top-down model of an elite who can see see reality better than you can and can relay it to mass audiences in a in a reliable manner. And it has very much been a, a model, I think, for a lot of other public broadcasters and even media institutions around the world who then kind of adopted that way of doing it, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's an interesting parallel relationship between the, the big networks in the United States and the BBC. I mean, they, they obviously, you know, superficially they look very different. But actually, for a long time, they had very similar ideas about performing a, a certain sort of public service um, presenting a sort of mixture of entertainment and uh, information and so on. And I think the BBC does see itself as a sort of lead institution in, in the broadcast sector. And the BBC is a, is a provo- provocation in a sense, is to say, wh- why are you still clinging on to the idea that your audience says nothing while you speak? Why, why is that still your default? And why is it so difficult, it seems, for you to embrace the possibilities of the technology when you know the bbc was a pioneer in broadcast it was a pioneer in you know microcomputing in the 80s and so on it's been, it has taken a lead role in various areas but it's been completely supine really in the face of uh, the new digital developments it hasn't developed platform capacity it hasn't become a space where viewers and listeners can become interlocutors both with one another and with program makers it simply hasn't been able or willing to take seriously the technology. I mean, it, it created an iPlayer, which allows people to watch television programs on the internet, but has shied away, it seems to me, quite consciously from the kind of space where, um, which has been taken up by the likes of Facebook and Twitter, where you can have, albeit one mediated by unaccountable private institutions, you can have a horizontal conversation between users. So one of the first things I proposed that a British cooperative would do would simply to provide a platform architecture for the BBC. So that if you were a BBC um, licensed pair in the UK or you wanted to join from anywhere else in the world, um, you would be able to access a BBC platform where you could talk about programmes, talk about anything you liked. The publicly funded content of the BBC, if you like, would act as the initial honeypot like why would i sign up to another platform that seems like a hassle i've got another that's another password it seems annoying on the other hand it's the bbc so they probably won't steal my data they're probably not shifty in that narrow sense exactly yeah <laughs> uh, i'm not going to go out to bat for the bbc too much but they're not, they're not going to immediately nick my credit card details and we're not to rio um but the fact that there is this kind of wealth of news and entertainment uh, and educational content that the BBC has would give people, as it were, um, an initial reason to engage with the platform. 
And then as with all platforms, it's the other people that become the sort of abiding interest. It's like, what are they up to, right? That then allows, I think, want to think about the audience as an active component of, of a media system. Um, and this is an abiding concern of mine is to try and think through how the people who rely on news and current affairs content in particular can play an active role in, in directing journalistic curiosity and in, in analysing journalistic content, uh, assessing it, um, and then redirecting it, right? So the idea of an active um, citizen body um, seems to me is incompatible with the idea of an inert audience, right? If we're to be a citizen body, we can't simply sit and let information wash over us and then discuss it in, in private life. You know, that leads to a radically atomized citizen body where we are completely dependent on centralized powers to tell us what other people think, which is a disaster for democratic sovereignty. Um, and so, yeah, my ambition for the BDC, would, I mean, frankly, my ambition for the, for the democratic state is to subordinate um, the economy to democratic deliberation. Right? I'm a socialist in, in, that, in that sense. And, and I'd like to see a cooperative democratic platform architecture replace paypal and, and amazon and and the rest and not just because oh that would be nice that would be nicer it'd be like etsy but with soviet style branding it would allow us to reconsider consumerism itself right what do we actually want what do we actually want not what do you want when you're hungry or depressed or lonely or nervous and what will the market then give you as a a kind of soothing but what do we as a, as a particular political community or network of political communities what do we want life to be like how do we gear production to the survive survivability of life and in the report you also talked about how that kind of architecture that you see it creating you know for the bbc and for the broader society would not just be used by other public institutions to ensure that you know the the kind of things that they are producing for the public are becoming available through this architecture, but it would also be used to kind of empower citizens' assemblies and other forms of kind of cooperative governance and communication, cooperation, what have you, to kind of forward this goal of, you know, having the public more involved in the decision making around their lives and, and you know, just how everything is run, right? Right. And so, you know, you think about how innovation works at the moment. There is a sort of tightly bound set of relationships between venture capital and technological skilled labor, if you like, that is geared towards the production of billionaires through the creation of capitalist enterprises. But the, the default organizational model, if you like, is the venture capital funded private corporation registered in Delaware with a charismatic CEO and blah, blah, blah. And we're very familiar with that model of, of what innovation looks like. Well, what would it be like if you had a model of innovation that's stated purpose was to create cooperative enterprises and that you were building enterprise software for cooperative enterprises? So that you'd be thinking, well, what, you know, this kind of cooperative needs this, this kind of functionality and it's, it's enterprise software because it needs to have this relationship between the the users of the product and the and the creators of the product, and it needs these kind of checks and balances to prevent various kinds of misbehavior by managers or misbehavior by by one one element of the co-op against another, and so on. 
so you, you you'd have a different approach to enterprise software you'd have a different approach to to innovation because you, you the end result was different you didn't want to create billionaires you just wanted to create wealthy communities you wanted to create people who were uh, in charge of their lives and that is not really what's of interest to the capitalist sort of innovation model it's just not what they're they're there to do or if they're there to create fulfilled lives it's for two or three people at a time (laughs) definitely (laughs) and i thought that was one of the really interesting pieces of the report right because you talk about how you mentioned it earlier how bdc would create a new payment system new kind of e-commerce platform um and and also the different kinds of software that you know people just need to run cooperatives to engage in everyday life what have you and the features of those platforms and of those software systems would respond to the needs of cooperatives and one of the ways that you explain that that would happen and obviously it's very different from how technology is developed now where as you say it's very centralized in these massive monopoly corporations. But you talked about how there would be development teams in towns and villages kind of, you know, distributed across the country, and they would be able to kind of take these tools to reformulate them for the needs of local communities, local cooperatives, and also, you know, develop things that they might need that don't already exist. And then when they're created, they could then be used to you know, benefit cooperatives elsewhere in the country or the world or what have you, right? Yeah, there's always a tension, I think, you know, when you're talking about human emancipation, right? there's a tension between laying down what one thinks should happen um, and leaving a space for people to, to decide for themselves. There's a set of things that a, you know, a serious public innovator would, would see as, as natural and urgent to do. One of them would be to create a platform architecture for for public media so that public content was integrated with public discourse in a a different and much more egalitarian way. That seems like an easy easy win. Taking things like payment systems, things like retail platforms and social media, that all at the moment is like we're using it because it has some value, but there's there's lots in there that we we don't really need or want. And there's an unaccountability in its governance that we don't want. So let's just build public sector alternatives and do it with a free open software architecture so that, yes, it becomes sort of endlessly replicable. People can go off and use that architecture for their own purposes. Again, the, the point about using the BBC as an accelerator, if you like, is that it's got all this content that attracts people. So you can build mass audiences or, or mass participation where that's useful. But obviously, you'd want as many different sort of variants and flavors of, of activity as people found useful to sort of flourish. But there's a point where you can't really predict what's needed. The new needs become obvious as people continue to talk. People continue to discuss the way that their lives work and, and how they like them to work. Again, like if you, if you build m- mapping tools with a, an avowedly democratic ambition, built a mapping tool that was like, oh yeah, this will explain who owns what in your town and what the geology of it is and what the soil quality of it is and like where the brownfield is and how much that piece of land went for and so on. So you kind of overlay all kinds of publicly useful information onto your mapping tools. 
as the current model nudges us towards consumption, that nudges us towards democratic agency, where we're like, oh, hang on a minute. We took that piece of land on that piece of land and then turned that into a, a nature reserve or strategic food reserve for the town. That's all public land anyway. So why can't we do that? You know what I mean? And that's like that sharpens the conversations you have with public authorities because you're like, yeah, well, as a town, we've decided we'd like this to happen. And unless you can come up with a really damn good reason why not, it's going to happen, right? But that would be enabled by technology. And I think if you put a technological team in a town and talk to the people, if you stayed long enough and talked to enough people, somebody would say, I've always wondered about that field or I've always wondered about that building. I've always wondered about this. I've always wondered about that. And it's like, oh, that's, that's the kind of information that would be useful for everyone to have. So you could see how figuring out how a town can govern itself becomes fraught with insights for how all towns might govern themselves, all cities might reimagine themselves, and what kinds of tools they might need. In the best world in the world, if you're 22 and just in a frenzy to be rich, right? It's just not, you're not going to chat like some old bloke. No. <laughs> you know, about, you know, how he's had an allotment for 60 years. It doesn't matter how smart you are, you're never going to get there. You're never going to figure that out. You're a greyhound in a, you know, on a racetrack and you want to win. You just want to catch the rabbit. And that's the game, the only game in town at the moment. Um, so again, you know, creating a, a public realm for innovation offers young people who want to make new things like a different model of innovation. It's like, it's not like that. It's not building an advertising scam, <laughs> right? It's, it's helping people like flourish. And doing that isn't about bestowing goodies on them. It's, it's about talking to them and figuring out how you can help. Yeah, because the existing model just would never encourage that. It's not the kind of information that would be attractive to a venture capitalist, right? No. It's not something that they could make money off of or charge rents for. No, and it's, you know, in a way, it's the opposite of enclosure in that sense, in that right, rather than funneling people into consumption opportunities, you're opening up kinds of, of knowledge and insight that at the moment give an edge to private capital. That's the kind of information that they're very keen to enclose, really, and spend a lot of time obscuring in a way. The media have a very particular story they tell about place and about why certain places develop in some ways and others develop in other ways. It's just kind of, it's just, it's fraught with, with mystification because it's, that's, the, that's the real stuff, right? That's how you make real money. And so opening that up to a much broader public would have, I think, profound effects on political life because like, the model that we have of capitalist development in cities this is just a complete fairy tale. They're in the business of making money for nothing. That's it. That's all it is. And until people grasp that and see how the state is used to enrich favoured private sector actors, until people grasp that they could use the state to enrich themselves in a much more profound, much more kind of meaningful sense of like creating the opportunities for, for human flourishing through state control of the physical environment, we're going to continue to see cranes go up unaffordable flats go up and um, see people driven out of um, where they live and, and see artists and blame them for it and so on. And our lives, you know, will live in a mystery. I think the, the overriding drive for Democrats is to, is to demystify life in that sense. 
kind of create conditions where people can understand their circumstances. So yeah, so this is of you know this is of, of a piece with a a broader way of trying to reconsider the state, but it's certainly you know innovation in the technological spaces is, is key really. And you know we are in the midst of this pandemic experience, and there is a lot of people are on a kind of pause. It's like, what are we doing? What have we been doing? And it seems to me this is a really good time to sort of step back and say, well, the state has intervened massively to support the existing social order. And liberals are always amazed by this. They're always like, oh, they're all the, <laughs> the game has changed this time, right? And it's like, it's exactly the same game as it was in 2008, right? The existing order came, it got into trouble and the state bailed it out. That's what, yeah. that's what happens. And the liberals are permanently astonished by this, oh my God, oh, there is no free market. <laughs> But we could be using, you know, we could be using the state as an expression of our collective wishes to remodel the, the economy so that we don't end up killing human life, right, through climate change. And um, my hope is that this will be um, um, a chance to call the bluff of people who say that that uh, there's nothing we can really do. Because obviously we can. We just need to take power and initiative away from a handful of billionaires and take it for ourselves because it's like where else did that their power come from even when we look at the history right in the way that you say that you know liberals are shocked to see the state come to the rescue of the system every decade when we look back at the history of technological development even though kind of the common narrative is that it's this kind of free market private sector driven sort of industry when we look back we can see very clearly that that is not the truth that this whole technological system that has been created was really dependent on, you know, at least in the United States, I'm sure it's similar in the UK, but on massive, you know, public subsidy, uh, on, you know, military spending, on states, you know, sending direct investment to particular parts of the country to kind of create tech hubs, um, you know, Google, Apple, all benefited from public subsidy to get started. And, and, you know, to get them through those, those early years. So we can see that the creation of this tech industry as it exists today was very much uh, something that was decided by the state and by state actors. Yeah. It's not something that has just kind of emerged and, you know, created itself in this way out of nowhere. No, exactly. I think we, we have got it the wrong way around in that we... And this is true on the on the left as well. We, we can sometimes think in terms of this all-powerful corporate sector that uh, drives the world like like a colossus. And actually, what we have, I think, is a is as it were a corporate state. We have a state that looks to corporations as its sort of natural auxiliaries, as its um, as its lieutenants. As I said earlier, it's a state that can see corporations. Corporations, as it were emit the same wavelength of light as states. So they, they can kind of recognize a, a corporation. You see this, you know, to the point of pathology in the UK, where the state at the moment seems the only lever it wants to pull is giving money to private contractors. So we have like accountancy firms running COVID testing in car parks with people they've hired weeks or days before. I mean, it's, it's absolutely baffling. Oh my God. They've ignored an existing public sector infrastructure in, in public health, uh, which they've starved of funding for 10 years. So, yeah, so we have corporate states where they are looking to enhance the social power of corporations of various kinds. 
And what we need, I think, is a cooperative state. We want a state that brings cooperative elements into its its own structures, but sees the cooperative as its natural counterpart in civil society, if you like, its natural counterpart in, in the economy. So that as with the current relationship between the state and the private economy, there is a kind of harmony where public investments are Yes, they're supporting their favoured sector, but their favoured sector is a sector which is much more egalitarian, um, much more accountable, and much more embedded in place. Because, as you say, Silicon Valley is is famously a creation of the wartime state in the US. Um, It's where kind of modern air defence is is sort of developed, and it is gradually kind of shapeshifts into this um, apparently civilian operation. But that's, you know, that is, you know, there's a great deal of PR and there's a great deal of kind of bullshit in there. The state is the prime mover. Only the state can really do the kinds of deep, um, prolonged, unprofitable work that can later be turned into marketable commodities. And again, you know, this is beyond the scope of this particular conversation. But if you look at life sciences, you know, the the corporate state um, funds basic science, but funds it in a way that makes it available to makes it, as it were, the first stage in a, a process of commodification that ends up in the pharmaceutical sector. If you thought about the life sciences from a cooperative and democratic starting point and thought in terms of population and individual health, you wouldn't be fixated on pharmaceutical solutions in anything like the same way. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't useful things that have come out of that, any more than there aren't useful things that come out of Silicon Valley and its, and its sort of counterparts elsewhere. But if you're looking, if you're looking at human flourishing, you would think about life sciences in a in a much more broad way, and you would think about it in a much more sensible way. In the sense, like you would think about the material conditions for good health, rather than oh, how can we make money keeping people alive a bit longer when they've ruined their health? So yeah, I think across the the whole kind of innovation piece, we need to stake a claim really in what the state could be doing and insist that it starts to do it. Certainly. And obviously, if we're going to design technology in service of human flourishing and a wider economy in service of human flourishing, it's through the state and through public institutions that are going to try to encourage that, that we can do it. And you know, in service of that, you say the BDC is intended to operate kind of as a vanguard institution, right? In the same way as the BBC provided a template for the post-war social democratic settlement, the BDC could lay the way to developing the structures of democratic socialism. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a good, good way of framing it. I mean, the BBC was not, in a way a slightly sinister um, template for the social democratic public sector because, as I say, it is a, it is a product of the late empire and in some ways is the sort of um, the perfection of the kind of... Um, foreign office model of population management, which so impressed people like Walter Lippmann in the US. I don't think people quite grasp the sophistication and subtlety of the late empire. But but yeah, the BBC um, comes out of that and becomes something of a template for the nationalised industries in the UK, which were again, very top down, very unaccountable, very much kind of reproducing um, existing patterns of social authority. If we're going to do it differently, then I think we have to sort of jettison any sentimentality about, as it were, the old public sector and think much more deeply about what we want the state to look like, as well as the public sector 
that comes out of it, if you like. We need to be very clear that unless we get into the deep guts of the state, it will not produce the technologies or the institutional forms um, that we need. In fact, unless unless we tackle that, we'll we'll never be allowed to have that conversation about what we actually need. And that's, I think, the nightmare, is that the future becomes one of disoriented individuals being pushed and prodded around by technologies we don't understand. And unfortunately, that seems to be the path we're on, and hopefully we can change it. Dan, it's been fantastic to speak with you and to hear more about the British Digital Cooperative and how you imagine it. I really appreciate you taking the time. That's a great pleasure. Dan Hind is the author of The Return of the Public, Democracy, Power, and the Case for Media Reform. You can buy it from versobooks.com, your local bookstore, you can get it from your local library or anywhere else that sells books. He's also the author of a recent report from Next System and Commonwealth entitled The British Digital Cooperative, and you can follow him on Twitter at at Dan Hind. If you liked our conversation, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at at Tech Won't Save Us, and you can follow me on Twitter at at Paris Marks. Tech Won't Save Us is part of the Ricochet Podcast Network, a group of left-wing podcasts that are made in Canada. Thanks so much for listening.